Welcome to this episode of Opportunity Matters. In this episode, we'll explore the impact of the racial wealth gap on the healthcare industry, and we'll strive to figure out some paths to have better outcomes and to close the impacts that that wealth gap has on healthcare issues. We got three great guests. One is actually my co-pilot with the Coalition for Equity Opportunity, Dr. Frida Griffith. She's the managing director of Wharton CEO, the Coalition for Equity Opportunity, and she's trained as a quantitative sociologist and demographer. She received her PhD here at Penn, and uh, she left us for 13 years to be a professor at Denison, and there she focused on a number of issues, anthropology, sociology, and global health. She returned to Penn to work with us after 13 years. Thank you for coming back. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Guy David is one of my colleagues here. He's the Alan B. Miller Professor and Professor of Healthcare Management, Professor of Medical Ethics and Health Policy at the Perlman School of Medicine. Um, his research focuses on the economics of nonprofit providers, challenges in primary and post-acute care, and healthcare workforce. He's been active in promoting diversity in graduate education, a lot of work with Meharry, and provides lectures about health equity in degree and non-degree programs at Wharton. Welcome, Guy. Thank you for having me. And Saria Clory, who's become a, a good friend over the past years, we've gotten underway uh, with Wharton CEO. He's the head of the TIA Institute, and he's a Wharton grad. Um, he's been overseeing research on in enhancing lifelong financial security and organizational effectiveness in higher education and the broader nonprofit sector. He sits on the board of the Wharton Pension Research Council, the advisory councils of Georgetown Center for Retirement Research, the Retirement Research Center of DCIIA, and the MANH chapter of the U.S. Alzheimer's Association. He's a very important guy. Now, and finally, in 2021, Sharia received the President's Volunteer Service Award via AmeriCorps in recognition for his commitment to strengthen communities. Sharia, good, good to see you again. Thank you for, for joining us. Uh, Ken, great seeing you. Uh, wonderful joining this August panel, and I look forward to this discussion. We could just stop after the introduction, so that, that's, <laughs> that seems to be <laughs> impressive enough. Uh, but the guy is, is the, uh, the, the professor in, in, this, in this business. Give us some insight as to what the the biggest equity gaps are in healthcare. Where, where do we see the kinds of impacts that we're most concerned about as we're trying to look for opportunities to to make things better for the broadest number of people? Yeah, I think um, it may be easier to ask where we don't see gaps. So um, I I, I would argue the biggest gaps in in healthcare from a disparities perspective are going to be in health insurance coverage and in access to health services. And by that, I don't just mean hospital care, but also primary care, uh, even pharmacy. Now, um, it's, you know, you, you, you can argue um, that these are the disparities in healthcare, but they're not just stemming from the healthcare system. We have to understand that there are disparities in a lot of other dimensions, and I know we're going to touch on several of them today, um, that will affect people's health status. So, um, you know, lack of economic stability, housing, transportation, uh, health and financial literacy. Uh, you can think about the entire education system, food insecurity, um, exposure to violence, to trauma. 
the justice system. So all those disparities, um, you know, are are basically spill spilling over uh, into disparities in health status. And if health equity means really ensuring that everyone has a chance to be as healthy as possible, it really starts with realizing that not everyone has the same opportunities to achieve the same level of health. So, so, so Guy, the, the whole idea of the zip code that you reside in or were born in has a huge impact on, on health care. That, 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 that is a true statement. Absolutely. It, uh, the zip code you were born in will affect uh, how affordable care will be for you, how you're going to navigate health insurance, how you're going to access technology, your literacy level, how you're going to access transportation, the level of outreach and prevention that you're going to encounter, uh, your education, your mental health, and your personal safety. All of those things are going to have an effect. And, you know, they, they will translate into effects on the quality of life and your life expectancy. And before I move on to to uh, Farida and, and Saria, you, you said health health insurance. I, I just have to ask: is is it, are you saying in some cases it's the complete absence of insurance, or is it is it more the un, under insurance? It's it's both the lack of insurance completely and under insurance. Um, you have uh, programs like you know, Medicaid, which um, uh, is not distributed evenly across states. It's really state administered. And we have a lot of issues with access across states. And we also have a lot of people that just don't have insurance. Uh, even after the Affordable Care Act, we have millions of Americans who don't have insurance. Now, now, Frida, be, before you joined us, uh, you, you focused a lot on healthcare issues internationally. And I was specifically, you did some work um, in, your, in your doctoral studies on, on South Africa. How, how are these issues globally the same different the the answer is yes uh the short answer is yes but the question to get to that answer may be a little bit different right and so the variables and way in which we think about uh health insurance in the context of south africa um public and private um and the access of medical aid and the way in which the census the south african census kind of denotes it is something that majority of the population does not have private access um, and so the public access or the public, uh, admi publicly administrated um, uh, medical aid is something that most individuals rely on. And so my research really was trying to uh, tackle not only, um, and, and this is something that I think equity, health equity is, is trying to also tackle. It, it's just, it's not just health care, but there are these other factors that are contributing to this. And so as we think about within the context of my research, racially residential segregation patterns where people live, right? And so as we think about it in the post-apartheid context, we would imagine a place where segregation was no longer an issue. And so what my research really tried to understand and explain is that even using, you know, even looking at data 10 years post-apartheid, we were still seeing segregation levels at the same level uh, or higher than it was during apartheid. And so these policies that are in place in terms of where people live, and once those policies were removed, have long-term effect um, on individuals, not just where they live, but how th their health outcomes. So I was looking at and mapping um, those outcomes, particularly chronic health condition, educational attainment, social class, because it's not just the health, the health status of the individuals, it's all those other things that kind of uh, poke holes or uh, impact um, the overall health status of the individuals. And if I may add, 
Um, I researched post-pen um, and um, something that I was really interested in while I was at Denison was looking at Somali immigrants. So if you look at a population, particularly Somali women, and who are, had newly immigrated to the United States or have been in the United States for several generations, what they talked about was in the way in which they kind of navigated the quote-unquote Western medical system and the way in which they um, kind of felt kind of an outsider. They talked about language, they talked about religion, and they talked about these custom, cultural customs that were norms to them as a way to really understand how to navigate um, this and then also to navigate that in the context of this newly, kind of their new world. Um, and so that was really something I was I remain interested in. Um, and as we think about something that we're doing more and more, you can't just talk about health, right? We have to talk about all of these social and economic factors that also are interrelated to that. So I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated. I'm thinking about zip codes and postal codes and, hmm. and, and what you just said about Somali immigrants. And then you carry those zip codes with you. Correct. That, that it's not something just because you can move from a neighborhood right. doesn't necessarily mean your life life transforms. Right. And individual may live in a place, right? But then if they are, they don't have enough, they're not have, making a livable wage where they can have enough to buy food or while they're at work, they're stressed about childcare for their, their children. All of those things don't just leave once you leave your house, right? Those things are kind of the baggage that you take with you, whether or not, um, and, and you can't, you're no longer able to just like put them in, in a vacuum. And so those are the things that I was really interested in. I had a really um, in-depth conversation with the women um, and kind of talked about their journey and talked about this, um, the space that they were currently in as the head of the household and what that meant for their children, for their spouses. Um, and so that those things were very complex and very layered um, and really important to kind of think about. So, Saria, the work that TIA Institute does just has fascinated me over the course of of this past years, I've gotten to to know more of it and see the kinds of research that you support, the kind of research that that you've done. What are some of the the biggest issues that that come to mind when you think about this that that we need to bring to the forefront? Uh, thank you so much, Ken. Uh, what a rich discussion uh, so far already. Um, so one mantra that I carry uh, that we carry at the institute is health and wealth uh, could be considered two sides of the same coin. And uh, for example, Guy was talking about financial and health literacy. So let me pull on that thread for a second to talk about some of the research we've done. And, and Guy, I'm, I'm happy to share this research with you going forward as well. But we um, investigated uh, the topic of longevity literacy, meaning do people have an appreciation mm -hmm. of how long uh, they can live? Mm. Uh, and we have actuarial data to be able to test that question against, if you're a male or a female, et cetera. Now, I'm fascinated by the zip code conversation that we can add some sophistication to this. But what we learned was that a staggering number of Americans uh, do not have an appreciation of how long they can expect to live in retirement. And if you think about uh, what our life expectancy was when Social Security was passed, to what it is today, we've added 70 to 20 years. And so our knowledge is, our cultural knowledge is not keeping up with the actual facts on the ground. And so one of the things we've learned when we look at people with higher longevity literacy, their financial behaviors are much more amenable to what we would teach in terms of proper retirement planning uh, at, at school. So for example, 
uh, those with higher longevity literacy actually thought about how much they need in retirement. Uh, those who had higher longevity literacy took action to save on a regular basis and also had confidence. So, so if you think, uh, you know, some we can impact some positive behavior. Uh, we think we can do that by enhancing people's longevity literacy in addition to financial literacy. And the, all the points that Guy and Freda were making about disparities is showing up in this data. Mm -hmm. uh, longevity literacy levels are different by males and females and by gender, uh, by, by ethnicity and race as well. It, it's such a, a, a striking observation. I, 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 my father passed away at 64 years old and um, I'm now beyond 64. My brother was beyond 64 um, before me. But but our perspective on life and and many of his friends were were gone at that now relatively early age too. And when I when I speak to you know in my more sophisticated life now I speak with financial advisors and they're talking about okay let's let's uh, do a Monte Carlo scenario and see if you you make it to 95. I'm like well wait a minute that's that's you know that would be phenomenal in, in a way that I may or may not have the right perspective on on trying to deal with that reality, even with all this education and, and all else that I have. Any kind of thoughts about that that kind of transition? Again, this, this goes to that whole area code kind of thing, too. Can you move from being a person that that's in a world where, ah, nobody's living that long anyway, so, so I can go paycheck to paycheck and I'll be okay? But it, are there any any studies out there that, that anybody's seen that yeah, look at this transition? There, there's one, uh, Ken, if I could jump in on this point. Um, there's a study that uh, that we funded at Boston College Center for Retirement Research that distinguished between objective life expectancy and subjective right. life expectancy. So, uh, so, Ken, in your anecdote, you were expressing your subjective life expectancy. My father, my brother, me my family, my situation, where I grew up, et cetera, which is very important to your self-belief. But to the same people, if you offered objective life expectancy, saying, hey, your, your dad, your brother, et cetera, but here's your education, here's your zip code, uh, here's your physical situation as we stand today, and people like you, unlike others in your family or lineage, live this long, is more objective education, and we found that people's behavior changes if you give them that objective knowledge. So does it sound like, if, do I hear you saying that the objective and the subjective um, reality, like the, the perspective must mirror each other in order for this to work? They complement each other. Yeah, it can't be alienated, but they should complement each other. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm ready to be studied. We'll see if, if, I, if I continue to act like I'm playing with house money. These, these are extra years. So I have I have in my, in my house, if, you know, again, show you what kind of friends I have. There are all these books that have titles like Die Broke. I have, the, I have those, those in my house, which is the counter path. TIA Institute is not supportive of, of, that, of that kind of way of, of, of looking at life. You know, spend as much be before somebody else gets their hands on it. But, but, but Guy, I, I want to circle back. You know, let, let's talk some more, more about uh, interventions and, and paths that can can change what, what's out there. Um, now we've got a lot of the, you know, not a lot. We've got, we've got a, a brief snapshot of, of some of the major issues that are out, are out there. Um, you, you mentioned in, in, in your initial list of, 
uh, problems that, that exist. Also, the, the absence of, of, of pharmacies, for example. And, and I heard somebody talk about it in some communities, again, the zip code issue. It, it's a pharmacy desert. Um, and one of the things we were thinking about as, as we're, we're talking about doing this series of podcasts was AI and what kind of technolo- technological interventions, what else, what else can be provided to um, try to address these issues that we may not have thought of before. And I only know uh, briefly about Amazon's venture into this pharmacy space, which is the CVS in my old neighborhood in LA has closed down. And um, my brother and others are trying to figure out, well, why do I have to drive three or four miles to try to get prescriptions? Or at worst case, say, yeah, never mind, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll get it tomorrow. And they actually need it today. What b- Besides the, the Amazon example, or maybe that one too, what else do we see out there that this trying to address this this issue in in ways we haven't haven't done before? We should do more of. Yeah, I, th- I think there's a lot of innovation that is coming out, um, but I want to I want to go back to the Amazon example because sure. we're we're trying to look at innovation in through the lenses of equity and and health equity uh, uh, in particular. So it's very easy to think about innovation that serves uh, to you know benefit segments of society but actually exacerbate uh, equity issues so I think I think this is this is a good question whether um, Amazon pharmacy will be uh, improving health equity or not um, my gut feeling is the answer is probably yes but there is um, pros and cons that we have to weigh here so, so I think that there's there's definitely a lot of pros um, the the obvious one is that uh, today over 60 percent of the US population are Amazon prime members that's about 167 million Americans uh, today. And so Amazon Pharmacy can potentially reach underserved population with limited access to physical pharmacy, as you mentioned. And this could be because they live in remote or rural areas, but also because they face other barriers like transportation or uh, branches that are closing like you, you described. But honestly, I think it goes uh, well beyond accessibility. Um, the hope is that Amazon might actually affect prices, so create more competitive pricing and discounts uh, will make medication more affordable. And in my perspective, the the, the study that I've uh, been uh, involved in uh, around the importance of medication adherence. So the convenience of having drugs delivered to you can have a big effect on that. And this is a major issue uh, in healthcare because um, not having adherence to medication causes a lot of unnecessary hospitalization, emergency uh, room visits, and so on. And in this case, these are activities that are both expensive and avoidable. And, you know, I I would say uh, Amazon has another benefit uh, beyond being just a delivery mechanism. It's also a platform. So they can leverage this platform to provide more health information and more education, which we've, you know, we've discussed here really nicely in this podcast, uh, is, is a key component for health equity. Now, there, there, you know, there's not a lot of um, cause here, but probably one obvious one is that not everybody in the U.S. has access to the Internet. And, um, you know, this could limit the reach of, you know, Amazon Pharmacy to only those that are um, connected. And so recent sur- surveys have looked at this. Um, fortunately, 92% of uh, individuals in the U.S. have access to the Internet. But obviously, this, this problem of no access is more pronounced in you know, rural states. So 
states like Mississippi, New Mexico, Arkansas, almost 20% of homes uh, are with no internet access. So there is, there is a chance that uh, our most vulnerable population will not be able to benefit from this innovation. Uh, and this, this can exacerbate uh, existing disparities. And, and, and tell people, too, I mean, that's very interesting to, to think about the, the idea of the absence of technology. Because also, as you get older, the, the difficulty in using technology. So, so that, that community, that demographic as well, uh, ends up having issues with the great, greatest next technology that, that comes up. Frida and Saria, what else you you see out there as interventions that that we should focus on, that we should embrace going forward? Yeah, I'll jump in um, and kind of speak a little bit about um, the ways in which what we're trying to do here at the Wharton School. Um, and so the Coalition for Equity and Opportunity, um, which Ken has so nicely presented earlier in the podcast, has really been trying to think about ways in which um, individuals who typically don't have access to the Wharton School are now having uh, access to, as we think about financial literacy, as we look at health equity, particularly um, for this podcast, we have been um, working within the West Philadelphia community. We had a partnership um, this past summer where we were thinking about wellness and the, the entire being, right, the entire person, um, their financial wellness, as well as their health outcomes. And so um, we had the, the community event in which we partnered with the Office of Diversity and Inclusion here at the Wharton School, as well as Penn Medicine to provide things like, you know, fresh fruit and vegetables um, uh, for the community, uh, provide financial literacy, um, had individuals who are, who are doing this work in the community. We have a, lots of resources that I think not only the West Philadelphia community, Pennsylvania, so as well as nationally and globally could access, um, as we talked about, through the internet. And so we're also creating these short uh, toolkits where we take um, faculty's research that they spend a lot of time working on that sometimes is not accessible to a larger population and making it digestible in ways in which um, they're thinking about as we look at um, health outcomes. As doctors are uh, meeting and, and talking with patients, how to think about these things on a larger scale. And then lastly, partnering with organizations like TIAA Institute to make sure uh, we are getting, you know, touching multiple parts of um, the population and providing information and using it to elevate um, that work, not only within the faculty, not only the, the research that faculty are doing, but creating new research that faculty could be doing as well. So we're continuing to support those endeavors. Saria, closing thoughts. We've got uh, two minutes left. Just just the thoughts from all the research you have, the the, the pieces that you want to make sure uh, those listening to this podcast know to improve the situation in terms of the opportunities that exist uh, to address health care and bring about greater equity. Indeed. Um, we, we can think about micro-interventions, and we can also think about macro right. intervention. So I'd like to address a macro intervention point that we are very excited about. And I'll, I will call that the Retirement Bill of Rights. So talking about health and wealth being on two sides of the same coin, mm. we know about the Patient Bill of Rights. So why don't we marry a Retirement Bill of Rights with it to improve access uh, to retirement savings? So, so expanding access, uh, it, it would be one aspect of it providing the right kind of information uh, so people can make the right decisions and low-cost investment opportunities because there are lots of concerns around 
either things being overpriced or people being overcharged. Uh, and then finally, income. Uh, you know, we've gotten away from pensions to completely managing investments on our own. So if you can give people some stable income along with social security, can put them on a solid financial footing as well. So, so retirement bill of rights would be the macro level innovation and intervention can be would propose. Surya, I, I really appreciate that. And Guy, Farida, we've gotten some progress in terms of, of the things that, that we can do. Obviously, a lot more to cover, that, that, but the idea that you, you're not bound by your zip code necessarily, uh, the, the idea that technology might help, uh, and the idea that there is this, this intertwining of, of health and, and finances is what we need to address further. Thank you for joining us. Join us for our next episode of Opportunity Matters. I'm Farida Griffith, Managing Director for the Wharton Coalition for Equity and Opportunity. In partnership with Wharton Works, led by Professor Damon Phillips, Business Roundtable, and Second Chance Business Coalition, we're bringing together business leaders, academics, state leaders, and justice-impacted communities for discussions on creating pathways to sustainable employment for individuals who are formerly incarcerated. To learn more and register, go to ceo.wharton.upenn.edu.